If you like this content, please support Unfound at Patreon, PayPal, or YouTube. On this episode, I go over how a volunteer is now a suspect. I detail the unsolved murder of a famous actor's brother. I pass along the latest Murda update. And I cover a bunch of other stuff, including my Groundhog Day story. I'm Ed Densel, and this is Unfound Live for January 29th, 2024. Well, hello, everyone. This is Unfound Live for January 29th, 2024. Hope everybody's doing well out there, of course. Before we get too far into this, uh, whether you are just tuning in right now live for the video or if you are listening to this as a podcast on Tuesday the 30th or sometime after. As you are watching or listening, please uh, give this show a thumbs up, five stars, give it a nice review on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you may reside. And I would deeply, deeply appreciate that. Of course, for the people who are uh, watching live on Facebook, or uh, YouTube tonight. Do what you can. Of course, you Facebook people, you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to give it ye old. That's Y-E and then O-L-D-E. Ye old uh, thumbs up. And so we can have a nice uh, showing there. Got a fantastic show uh, tonight. Really not a ton of unfound stuff to talk about. So, uh, but we, there are a few things. And then I'm going to be some of the lineup things I have for you tonight. Combination of personal and true crime. I want to talk to you about my Groundhog Day, being that it's coming up this Friday uh, from 1997. So that would be 27 years ago on Friday, this coming Friday. That's crazy. Um, and so I would have been 26. So I'm, I'm more than twice as old as I was at the time. That's crazy. But I want to talk to you about that funny story being the Groundhog Day is coming up. Of course, Groundhog Day, a very, very popular movie, kind of uh, was a like didn't do very well when it came out in the theaters. But now it's considered to be one of the least American movies, one of the greatest American movies ever made. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of that movie. Um, also want to talk a little bit about my, uh, when Challenger blew up, that was yesterday. That was, what was that? 38 years ago yesterday. I want to talk a little bit about that, my memories of that. But then I, I'm going to try to get to the following stories. I want to talk about a beauty queen killer. Uh, I want to talk about, of course, Jennifer Kessie's 18 Years Missing. I want to talk about that. I'm going to give that another shot. Uh, we have not covered that, featured that as a disappearance, her disappearance on Unfound. I want to talk about something that's going on not too far away from where I live, where uh, a woman has gone missing, and now a volunteer, although I think this is totally crazy, but... A volunteer is now being considered a suspect. A volunteer who's trying to help find her 
is now considered a suspect in this woman's disappearance. I got to talk about that. Um, and then I'm going to talk about uh, the Murdoch trial. There was a big ruling in the Murdoch trial today. And then also something that got on to uh, – and then students catching, maybe catching or identifying a serial killer in the state of Tennessee. And then what got on to the agenda for tonight's show very late but is surely, surely, surely going to get featured is did all of you know that the actor Mark Ruffalo's brother had been murdered and it's still unsolved? I knew this uh, at some point. I remember knowing this, and I kind of forgot about it. And then, of course, Mark is up for an Academy Award. He's been doing a lot of interviews. He actually did this really good video. He and Robert Downey Jr. like go back and forth interviewing each other for like 50 minutes or something. You can find it on YouTube. It's spectacular. But in these interviews, now that he's getting a lot of attention, of course, as all Oscar nominees do, this whole thing regarding his brother being murdered and it's still being unsolved has come up a few times. And I was like, oh, yeah, I knew that. So I decided to take a look into that. What actually happened? Why is it still unsolved? So I'm going to be talking about uh, that tonight as well. And I have a very peculiar, like, couples degrees of separation uh from all of this very strangely uh that i will get into as well when i get to that story but i want to uh, now being that we're uh, now five minutes i want to see who who has made time for the live show tonight let's see who is here nephew charles what's going on karen valerie mary jane <coughs> lisa I know, and smiling from Kansas City. Yeah, we know, Lisa. Yeah, we know. All right, we know. Uh, fishing. Good to see you, Fishing. How, how have you been? I know uh, maybe Monday nights are not a convenient night for you, but I appreciate you tuning in. Jasmine, Charlotte, Kathy, Shree, uh, very happy that you could make it. Uh, once again, everyone, Shree is not feeling too well, so uh, maybe you want to give her a uh, uh, a little uh, get well soon, uh, a little message to her. So, Shree, thank you for making the time. Jill, Jamie from Massachusetts. What's going on? Good to see you on Facebook. And uh, Melody, uh, Melody, good to see you as well. Lisa laughing at me. Okay. So, actually, what's going on here uh, with me? Not much uh, really has been going on. Um I haven't played any disc golf for a while, and that's probably not a good sign given that I have a tournament coming up in Orlando this weekend. I was gonna, I was thinking about going out today and throwing, but it was too dang windy and cold. It was in the 50s today. <coughs> and I started, and by this way, this cough, it's just like an allergy thing or something. I'm not sick. Um, but I was gonna get out and throw today. Just, the weather just kind of – although we had a, one of the most beautiful sunsets I have seen since I moved in into this condo happened tonight. Still, uh, overall, this day was kind of um, not the greatest, although it didn't rain or anything, but it was just windy and cold. I actually opened the sliding glass door out here earlier today. I was like, wow, it is chilly out here. So maybe I can get some practice in tomorrow or Wednesday. 
or maybe Friday. I don't know. But it's been like two months, uh, I don't know, over two months since I've thrown a disc. I haven't thrown a disc since the last tournament I played in, which I think was in November. Or no, maybe the first weekend of December. That must have been what it was. Not long before I went to Colorado and then to Pennsylvania. So it's not been quite two months since I threw the discs. Just <clears throat> other things uh, taking priority. And, uh, but now I have to get ready, uh, for Orlando. I hope to go over there and, you know, we'll just see what happens. Other than that, uh, playing some trivia came in second on Thursday night with my team on Saturday night. I played by myself and I think there were seven or eight teams there. I came in by myself. I came in third, really did not lose by that much. Probably had a shot at winning just if a couple questions had gone my way. And uh, really, like I said, it's been a little uh, boring around here. I've been watching, well, I've been doing unfound work. I've been watching a couple different channels, uh, the Professor of Rock channel on YouTube. And then I also watch the Rick Beato, B-E-A-T-O channel, where he interviews musicians, mainly guitar players. So I've been going like back to like a few years ago, uh, see who had interviewed and, um, his most recent interview is with Paul Gilbert, who is a Mr. Big, who was in the, who's in the band that I was supposed to see a week ago, but they got sick. Well, coincidentally, Rick Beato, uh, interviewed Paul Gilbert and, uh, it was a fantastic, fantastic interview. And I'm really hoping that they come back to Clearwater area uh, soon so I can see them and I can use the tickets that I bought. So those are some of the things uh, that I've been doing, watching, and uh, some documentaries. I, I watched a documentary on the making of Hysteria by Def Leppard. That's on Amazon Prime. And I uh, watched a documentary also on Amazon Prime, the documentary on the making of uh, ACDC's Back in Black. That was pretty good. <clears throat> so that's what I've been doing. That's what's been playing since uh, since you saw me last. Um, you know, as you, you know, it's as I've stated, it's a little hard for me to write. Of course, I cannot edit the interviews or listen to the interviews and then have something on the TV everything. Of course not. And then, of course, when I'm writing and typing out what I'm going to say in the episode, really, for the most part, I need everything to be silent to do that around here. I can't have music playing or nothing on the TV. It just has to be completely dead in here. But what I'm doing... um Maybe, you know, do maybe surfing on NamUs or Charlie Project, or I'm going on newspapers.com to look into well, what was written about this disappearance when it happened. And I do a lot of that. <coughs> um, I, uh, then I might have the TV on or music on or something like that. But if it takes any concentration of writing, of course, listening to something, then, then I can't have anything going on here. But, so those are the, some of the things that I've been partaking in since uh, last Monday. Oh, I know what else I did. Finally, uh, being that I have Paramount Plus, 
I got to see the uh, the most recent Mission Impossible movie, Dead Reckoning, that came out last summer, and you know, right around when Oppenheimer and Barbie. I've still not seen those two, but Mission Impossible. I'm a big fan of the Mission Impossible movies, and I thought it was really, really good. Obviously, very complicated, and I have to admit that after a while, maybe all of the action kind of wears you out after a while. But I do, uh, I don't know if I'm going to ruin it for anybody, but I do like it that the main, um, the antagonist, the bad, uh, the enemy, the bad person, bad guy or whatever is actually, you know, a, a computer that allegedly has sentience. It's actually thinking for itself. I hope I'm not ruining it for everybody, but uh, I really like it that that is uh, the main enemy of the Mission Impossible crew this time around. Now, of course, it's a part it's a part one and part two, <coughs> but it was pretty oh, wow, pretty pretty good. And I've and I've had that playing already. I mean, that movie's like two and a half hours. I've already played it like three times or something while doing work here. So uh, there you go. But uh, once again, uh, as you are watching tonight, please give this show a thumbs up. I would really, really uh, appreciate it, uh, everyone. So let's see who else has gotten in here. Um, hope you're feeling better soon, Sharif. Feel better, Sharif. Uh, thank you, for better, Sharif. Hello, uh, Sarah. Everything, what's going on? Best show ever. Thank you. Ah, uh, Mr. Big, a band from my youth. My youth, too, Sarah. And love Def Leppard. Me, too, Sarah. Uh, and in fact, uh, as many of you know, yes, I'm continuing to take my singing classes. I do them five days a week. The only days that I don't do them are Sundays and Mondays because I have to talk so much. But Tuesday through Saturday, every day I'm doing my exercises. And uh, I should say that uh, Joe Elliott, uh, is one of those kind of singers that I look up to, although he's kind of lost some of his voice, if you've seen him in live and everything. But certainly back in the day, <clears throat> you know, all through the 80s into the early 90s, uh, the way his voice is, is a voice that a lot of singers, rock singers, would love to aspire to. And so he's certainly on my list of one of those guys that I look at that, you know, if I could sing photograph anywhere close to like what he does, that would be pretty cool. So, um, and I like um, a lot of Def Leppard stuff. And, uh, you know, I think that their, their Euphoria album that came out in 99 is 1999 is one of the most underrated rock albums of all time. That album is spectacular. If it had come out in the 80s, that album would have done, I don't know, probably would have gone triple platinum. Quad, I'm not saying it would have done hysteria numbers, but it would have done crazy, crazy uh, album sales in the 1980s. just came out, of course, at a different time. But that album, Euphoria, is hugely underrated. I mean, crazy. Love that album. Uh, Paper Sun on an album is one of my favorite songs of all time, of all Def Leppard songs. And uh, what else is everybody saying? Yeah, Hysteria, yeah, that's a great album. I love Def Leppard too. Yeah, see, Def Leppard was one of those bands that kind of crossed over that a lot of women could get into them too. I'm not saying there aren't women who like Iron Maiden 
or uh, Deep Purple or whatever. But Def Leppard was one of those bands that that's why they were able to sell as much as they did. They got a lot of women interested in them too. And maybe you could say that about some other bands, maybe Poison as well, a few others. But really when I think of Def Leppard, they're still a hard rock band, no doubt about it, skilled in every way. But they really I, I seem to attract a higher percentage of women than a lot of those other bands in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, my perception. All right, let's get into a couple unfound things, and then I'm going to tell my Groundhog Day story. We'll kind of go uh, back and forth uh, through some things. Uh, the, the Of course, this past Friday with the disappearance of Glenda Michelle Griffin, nicknamed Gabby, although we used her middle name for the uh, interview that I did with her mother, Edna. I thought Edna did a spectacular job. I like Edna a lot. And I posted a poll in the discussion group, and as I always do, pretty much. And I asked a very, I asked a very simple question. Um, do you think that Tommy, of course, the friend that was with her watching the Dallas Cowboys game, do you think that he is responsible for her disappearance? Overwhelmingly in the discussion group, people answered no. Tommy is not responsible for Michelle's disappearance. And the think tank, and as you, if you're watching right now, you can see across the screen, uh, support unfound at patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast. If you do that, uh, if you get to a certain level, you can be involved in the think tank. Very cool, very uh, cool club uh, of people that we get together on Sunday evenings and uh, talk about the disappearance for that week. In the think tank, the think tank pretty much went along with the discussion group group overwhelmingly that Tommy is not responsible, does not know what happened to Michelle. But here is where uh, this is one of those rare occasions. It, it, it my my perception, it's rare where the discussion group and the think tank kind of kind of are in, are in agreement. But I'm not in agreement. And you know I do this every week. I tell you what the discussion group decided, what the think tank decided, and then I give you my general idea. I don't go deep into specifics. If you want to hear the specifics, please, once again, just go to patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast if you want to get inside my head regarding uh, any of these disappearances and uh, my opinions, which, of course, I do not offer on the Friday podcast. So uh, if you want to do that, patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast. Of course, you get a lot of other things as well. You get uh, the episodes come out early and a, and a bunch of other things for a very, very low cost. But if you want to do the think tank, it's a little more money, but everybody that's involved in it stays and they love it. So, but for me, I will tell you that I am defaulting to the fact that, yes, Tommy is responsible. Uh, in very general terms, it comes down to a, a couple things for me. The stats say, of course, as I stated in the episode, you should now be to the point when you listen to an episode, you should kind of get an idea. What kind of disappearance is this? Is this a walk-off? Is it a man said? Is it drugs play a role? Is it a murder butt? Is it like something that's really weird, like a, a lig of their own? Or did somebody get lured? You should be able to quickly... 
well, not quickly because the interviews can sometimes be two hours. But as you're listening, you should be able to start narrowing down to the type of disappearance that it is. And that should really help your thinking, your theorizing um, as to what probably happened. And I will tell you, certainly Michelle's disappearance is uh, the man said. Man says something certainly could be true. There's no facts to back that up, though. And in fact, there might be some things that lead us to believe that he's lying. It's the man said. It's just her car is there, her purse is there, all these things are there, but she's gone. And although that's not totally the case in Michelle's uh, situation, her phone was missing, her purse was gone, but her car and keys were there. You must understand that overwhelmingly in the man said type of disappearances that the man who, who is the man in the man said is usually responsible. I have to remember that. So that really weighs on my mind. And then I just look at the totality and it's like, well, that's really, really convenient. You just happened to be asleep. You just happened to get up and not be able to see the kind of car or truck that was leaving. And, <clears throat> you know, he just conveniently didn't know who she was talking to. These are all topics, by the way, that we fleshed out in the think tank last night. But this is all on my mind, and so that's what – certainly Doug or somebody else could have come and picked her up. Certainly, but it's just a little too much of uh, convenience and coincidence for me at this point. Of course, we're now almost nine years into her disappearance. So, so the discussion group thought Tommy didn't do it, had nothing to do with it. Think Tank thought Tommy had nothing to do, it, do with it. Ed leans toward the idea that Tommy did have something to do with it. There you go. What's everybody saying here? Yeah, that's a great album, Charlotte says. Yeah, uh, Sheree Bon Jovi, another good example of uh, a band pulling in a higher percentage of women, certainly. And, and, and really, I don't even think it has anything to do with the, the, the way the guys looked or anything. I would just say that those bands just seem more open. Of course, rock, rock musicians, if they are straight, of course, want to get a lot of female attention. But it's just um, those bands that I'm naming there just seem more open to having uh, – if it was just female friends who just came to the concerts, fine with them. Just seemed that way as a guy who was coming into his teen years and adult years at the time. Just a perception. Just watch the Unfound Now, and that band that you mentioned was in L.A. in December for three shows, so I think you have a great lead there. Is that right, Cherie? Alkaline Trio, if anybody hasn't watched the Unfound Now, I was going to mention it, but I might as well mention it now, being that we're kind of moving on from the poll. Uh, today, I did release the new episode of Unfound Now. That's the first one since the end of November. And I picked out Katie Alice Massey-White, and what I said, so go check it out. It's on the YouTube channel right now. It's for everybody to see. And what I said in there, fantastic. that's fantastic, Tree, that you looked that up. That is fantastic. Good for you. You can't be too sick if you did that, Cherie. <laughs> Good job. Really, really spectacular. But something that I had said in that episode is that on Katie's She's Missing, she went missing in November. You know, you can just go watch the video and or listen to it actually, and uh, hear it all for yourselves. 
But one of the things that she did not long before she went missing, she seemed to be following this band Alkaline Trio. I, I don't know anything about them. And so I had postulated in the Unfound Now episode that maybe somebody should, and I didn't, I have to admit, that maybe it could be that she left and maybe somebody should check it out and see if uh, Alkaline Trio, where they are uh, on tour. And as Shri is now, as you can see Shri posting in, in the uh, chat right now, it turns out that uh, they were in L.A. And it does seem that is where Katie was headed. Because there were record records to show that she had bought an Amtrak ticket in Oklahoma City going to L.A. in late November. And it turns out that the Elk Band Alkaline Trio was going, as she's saying, you mentioned uh, for three shows in December in L.A. Wow, that is something, Cherie. So I just kind of threw that out there, just kind of to find an idea. I guess maybe, <coughs> I guess there could be something to that. Now, we, have, of course, we have to remember that's almost two months ago now. So there may be something to that. Maybe she showed up at the concert and has gotten to know the band and they don't know that she's missing and she's using a fake name or something. Could be. Crazier things have happened. So, Sheree, thank you uh, for, for tracking that down. That is spectacular. Wow. Okay. Good job, Ed. Uh, Hazel says the man said, yes, Michelle Griffin's disappearance. Certainly the man said. And Insomnia, what's going on? It's now 2.22. That's three minutes ago uh, over there. Hi, I hope you're having, having a great day. It's now 2.22 a.m. And I know I'm going to kill this. Tullamore, Ireland. And I wouldn't miss this awesome unfound live show for sleep. Thank you. Well, it, it, it's the, then it's convenient that you're staying up at night and your name is on insomnia. Uh, uh, that all seems to go together. So uh, thank you for tuning in tonight, uh, insomnia. But going back to the unfound now, like I said, it is now posted for everybody to see. This is a series I've been doing uh, since the summer of 2020 where I analyze a very recent disappearance only by looking at public information. I haven't spoken to the family or anything else. I just read what the news accounts are. Maybe I go to Web Sleuths or someplace like that, and um, then I do a little analysis at the end. And so I urge all of you to uh, check that out after the live show is over. Tonight, uh, I would admit that my analysis probably at the end, toward the end, is a little bit different than probably what you're used to. But uh, the only reason uh, I was like that is because hers is a different kind of disappearance. And uh, so you'll see what I mean if you watch the video. All right, moving on. <coughs> Uh, not sure why my <coughs> Utah insomnia says, not sure my YouTube account has a new pick name for me. Just to clarify that Char Charlene. Okay. We must be logged in under a, uh, you might've changed, you, you know, we can do that. Um, sometimes those things get flipped around, uh, Charlene. Sometimes, um, maybe if your computer or your phone has been updated or something, sometimes those things can get flipped around. So you want to look into that, but. Hello, Charlene. I know you, Charlene. 
Moving on, uh, kind of along the same lines as Unfound Now, I uh, released a uh, new episode of Found, but this is only for Patreon and YouTube supporters. So the general public, if you want to, if you want to see what I have to say about the disappearance to discovery of Richard Hoagland, I urge you to sign up at Patreon or hit the join button. If you're on YouTube tonight, hit the join button and you automatically get access to all of the founds that I've done since last March. So we got like 10 of them, I guess now, maybe nine. I didn't do one in December, so probably nine. And uh, if the name is not familiar to you, Richard Hoagland is the guy who went missing in Indiana, took off, and then he was finally found to be living under an assumed name, new identity, and everything else here in Florida in 2016. So he successfully took off, changed his name, his identity, got married again, had a child. He left behind a wife and two children, and he finally got caught 23 years later in 2016. And so what I do is, just like all the other founds to this point, I look at the disappearance. I look at the intervening years, no matter how long that is. In this case, it was 23 years. Like, what was on? Was anything written? Was anything done? Did anybody talk about his disappearance? Anything like that. And then I look at the circumstances as to um, how he or she was discovered, whether it's somebody who was deceased or alive. I've looked at J.C. Dugard, of course, was alive. Elizabeth Smart, who was alive, on the other hand, the first episode I ever did was Brandon Lawson. Of course, uh, he was found deceased. But Richard Hoagland was found to be very, very, very much alive and not a very good guy. Well, how did that all work? That's what the episode is. This is not to be confused with Robert Hoagland, who went missing around, what, 2011. He also went missing by choice. And then it wasn't until he died that people figured out that he had left his family and was living under an assumed name only about an hour away from where he lived. That's that's happened much more recently. He went missing in 2011, and I think he was discovered, uh, what was it, 2022 or, or something like that. Uh, whereas Richard Hoagland uh, just coincidentally have the same last names. That still creeps me out. And I do talk about that. In this episode, you know, what could be going on there. So uh, you want to check that out. Richard Hoagland, in my opinion, one of the, at least in the United States, one of the most well-known person who changed his identity and got caught of the 21st century. Uh, so that's why I decided uh, to pick his disappearance to Discovery out. And um, so there you go if you want to check that out. Uh, but we, once again, you have to sign up at patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast. And you have to sign up at the $5 a month level or above. Or if you want to just become a supporter and join us on YouTube, hit the join button below where you see me here. If you are on YouTube, you can sign up uh, for low cost. And you will also want to get that video and all the other videos that are behind the paywall uh, right away. Instantly, and you, uh, you'll have a lot, a lot to do, especially if you sign up at patreon.com. The amount of material that's there is going to keep you busy for a very, very long time. All very interesting uh, stuff, I think. And a lot of people, of course, anybody who's there, of course, thinks the same thing. 
All right, now that I've gotten, uh, let me see. Uh, let's go up here. Marty's here, everyone. About a half hour late, which is pretty common for him. And uh, he says he's feeling much better. Richard Hoagland was a crazy case. Got to be something with the name Hoagland. Yeah, I'm thinking so too, Marty. Yeah, Robert Hoagland went 2013 missing. Thank you, Kathy. Okay, yes. He was found in 2023, Robert Hoagland. So about 10 years, all right. Yeah, thank you, uh, Jasmine, for looking this up. I knew it was somewhere, and there was around 10 years. And so, yes, so he was missing for 10 years. Whereas Richard Hoagland, the topic of this most recent found episode, uh, was missing for 23 years. And it's very, very interesting. Once again, watch the, you'll have to sign up to watch the video. Uh, very interesting how he eventually got caught. And um, just how I think if we're really going to start thinking about, if you think there are any unfound disappearances where somebody could have walked off to start a new life, new identity, new social security number, all of that, whether it's a more recent disappearance or even going back to the 80s or 70s. You're going to have to embrace the idea that person probably had some help from people who didn't know they were helping that type of person. <clears throat> That's what I think I've learned from both the Richard and Robert Hoagland disappearances that had people been playing everything straight and being a little more um, conscientious and everything else, probably those guys would not have been able to do what they did. Uh, it, it just put took it was like I said, it's not anybody that helped him who was duplicitous was, you know, a partner in crime. Oh, yeah, I'm going to help you change your name and get a new social security, social security number. Nothing like that. It was a problem. It was some people who were probably going against their better judgment. And just co some coincidences here and there to make this happen. So if you are thinking that any of the missing people that we featured on Unfound actually went off and started new lives. You're probably going to have to add that into the equation. For them to successfully done this, they must have gone somewhere where people willing to look the other way or are willing to go along with a sob story or something like that. Just saying. Okay. Uh, hope you're happy. Okay. He was found in 2023. Okay. Now I'm going to go to this personal story. Given that it's Groundhog Day, Groundhog Day week, I um, and then we'll get back to some true crime stuff. Um, I want to talk to you about my Groundhog Day uh, of 1997. I probably told this story on the live show before, but I only get to tell the story once a year, and uh, it's a it's a pretty funny one. And you have to remember when this happened, I was only 26 years old. Um, so I'll start it here. I, uh, grew up in Leechburg, Pennsylvania, which is only about, I don't know, two hours or something from Punxsutawney where Phil, uh, the groundhog comes out of his hole and says whether there's going to be spring or is it going to continue with winter and really doesn't come out of a hole or anything. You really have to be there to see it. And you should know, uh, of course, the movie is going to be on all over the place this week on AMC and TCM and wherever else this week. You maybe have it on DVD or maybe you have it as one of your uh, maybe the subscriptions that you have that you can just watch at any time. Uh, but you should know if you've watched that movie, 
that's not really how it goes. Um, and of course, in the movie, it's like in this town square and everything. That's not how in real life they do it. It's out like in the woods and there's really no buildings around and it's, it's outside of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, just so you know. Um, and, uh, Jasmine Richards, yep, that's what he did. That's what he did, Jasmine. That's what I talk about. I look at all of that in the found episode. Yes, Jasmine. So really, even though it was only two hours away and everything, it really was not something that ever caught my fancy. But at the time I was in a relationship with a woman, her name was Janie. And this was kind of actually, to be honest, getting toward the end of our time together. <laughs> but um, she wanted to go. That's how I remember it. I don't remember. She was – and then so I was like, okay, let's go do it. So, of course, Punk Satani Phil comes out like right around sun sunup. So we have to leave at like 4.30 in the morning or something like that. What just so happened that that February 2nd was on a weekend. So we jump in the car early morning, get up there, and it's so busy that you can't go park where Phil actually comes out, where they hold the festivities. They made you park in these particular areas, <clears throat> and then they would have the school buses. Everybody would get in these school buses, and you'd get taken up like a couple miles away to where all the festivities and stuff were going to happen. So we parked somewhere. It's all dark, you know, and this is, of course, before phones and everything else. Nobody has any flashlights or anything else. It's all dark. We're piling into these school buses at, like, uh, 6 in the morning or something. And we get driven this couple miles, and we get taken up, and we get let off. And getting off the bus, it almost looked like you were, uh, you know, you were at the site of, like, a UFO landing because you have all these trees but in the distance, you can see like these lights and everything. And you, it actually could, you could convince yourself, is that like a UFO or something landing in the woods? It's more like that type. It's more like a concert atmosphere when you show up and there's music playing and there's people all crammed in there. And there's like, you know, beach balls are getting, you know, pushed, you know, one person and batted from one person to the other in the crowd. That's, that's what, how it goes. That's what really goes on. It's not like it's portrayed in the movie. So these bus was, buses would let you off. You go down there. Everybody's waiting. They're doing chanting. They're doing singing and all these things. And then finally, Phil and you know the guys come out on stage. And Phil's there. And uh, they go through it. And you're waiting, 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 waiting. And I don't even remember what Phil decided that year. I cannot remember. But the funny thing is, you know, everybody's all into it. Everybody. But as soon as it was announced... That, you know, whether Phil, Phil saw his shadow or not, most of those people just kind of turned around and started going back to where the buses, you know, had let everybody off. So although when you get there, people are getting there at different times. So it's kind of kind of orderly, orderly. But everybody's now leaving at one time. And it was a disaster. It was, it was, it was crazy. People, 
pushing people over. There were no lines. There were no police. There were no volunteers. Nothing. It was like every man, woman, and child for himself or herself. This is how I remember it. And there were no like places that they said, okay, the buses are going to be waiting here so you can get on one. Nothing. That's the way I remember it. All people did was they went back to where they got dropped off and they'd just start waiting for the buses to show up. <coughs> well, of course, there were way more people than there are buses. The buses were fine when you're taking people to the venue, but now everybody wants to leave at one time. I mean, the everything was overwhelming. And the thing is, it had rained, and so it was like this dirt road. And these buses are going like in this dirt road, and they're fishtailing back and forth. Well, there were no lines. No lines. So people were just standing along this dirt road in each direction. It wouldn't, might not have been a quarter mile, but it was pretty long. Standing along this dirt road, waiting for these buses to show up. And the buses were not stopping at any particular point. It's not like when you're waiting for a bus at a bus stop, the bus stop, you know, bus turns right at the stop and you get on. These drivers would just, I don't know, <laughs> just decide where they were going to stop. But there were no lines. So you could be standing right up against the road and the bus would just pass you by. You'd think, well, here I am right on the road. I'm going to get on the next bus, but the bus might stop you know, a hundred feet down from you, but then the other one might stop a hundred feet before you. It was total. I mean, it was total pandemonium. It was totally crazy. People getting angry and Jane and I were trying to fight our way through this, but everybody was. And I don't know how long we were out there. I don't know. An hour or something. I mean, it was crazy how people pissed where people were getting because there was no organization at all. None. It was not like when you go to Disney World and everybody's leaving at the end of the night and there's orderly lines and trains and everything, you know, if you've ever been or Disneyland, Disney World or any big amusement park where pretty much everybody leaves at the end of the day. It was nothing like that. It was the opposite of that. Complete chaos. So it's now like bright out and you can kind of see the surroundings and everything, but there are still a ton of people there. I don't, I don't know how many people. I mean, easily 500, 600, 700. I don't even know. It's a crazy number. You have to remember because it was a weekend. So finally, somehow Janie and I got separated. And so I'm standing along this road. It's muddy, muddy road. And I mean, if the, any of these drivers had lost control, people would have gotten wiped out. So I'm standing along the road. Well, somehow we got separated. And she's standing like 20 feet down to the right of me. Somehow this happened. I don't I can't remember how it happened. So this next bus comes up. It passes me. Don't you know? It stopped right in front of her. It's like a school bus. You know, you pull the lever and the doors open at the front right of the that's how it works. Would you not know that the door, the, the bus stops right in front of her? And so the doors open, and she's like the first one on the bus. But me, because I'm 20 feet away. I'm standing here like at the back tire where the back tire is. And I know there's so many people between me and, and the door and all the people like in that area. There's no way I'm going to get onto that bus. No way. So I see her come up and she sees me and she comes over and she's motioning to me like, 
you know, you get on the next one or whatever, and I'll meet you at the car and everything. And I said, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Open this window. Open this window. And she's looking at me like, oh, you know, she thought that I couldn't hear. I understood perfectly what she was saying. I, I, you know, I got it. You know, I knew her well enough what she was trying to say. So she opens. You remember, I don't even know if uh, bus windows are like this anymore, but it's the kind where they slide up and down and you have to push like those two buttons together and then slide it down. Like it slides. So there's two panes like this and you slide it down like this. She's fiddling around with it, finally figures it out. She puts the, the window down just a couple inches, and she keeps telling me, I'll, I'll meet you back at the car. You can get on the next bus. And I said, no, 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 no. Put that window the whole way down. She put the whole way, the window the whole way down. I did a chin-up and went in through the window. Because uh, I, I knew there was no way. I mean, I, I must have passed up 50 people. It was just something that just came to me. I had not seen anybody else do this, but I, uh, you know, I think I could still through, fit through a bus window. But she opened it up. I did a pull up. I went in like well, butt over tin cups and landed on my back on the seat of this bus. And that is how I got out of Groundhog Day of 1997. It was complete chaos. And I, maybe some other people did that after I left. Nobody, I, this is not an idea that I got from somebody else. This is just something that came to me in a moment. Cause I was like, I'm not waiting here for another minute, especially since Janie, who is in the, in the, you know, I don't even know if we took my car or her car. Did I have the car keys? Did she have the car keys? I don't even remember, <clears throat> but I was like, she's going to be down there. I might be here another hour. She might be waiting for me another. I'm not doing this. So I just went in through the window. And, and there were people cheering and some people booing. Nobody I, no, got mad at me that I can remember or anything. But it was just like a split second decision to get in front of uh, all of those people. Like basically what I did was I cut the line. Not that there was any line to speak of. It was so crazy. Now, what's funny about that is that I also went back in 1998. But that next year, it was like on a month, however that worked out, like it was the next day. It was like a Monday or a Tuesday or something. And because it was a work day, it wasn't, it wasn't crazy at all. You could actually drive up there. The very next year, you could drive up there, park, take your time, enjoy the scenery, everything else. Phil comes out, does his thing, and if you wanted to stick around, you could. If you wanted to leave, you could. But it was all in 1997 because it was a weekend. So if anybody <coughs> – I don't know. what That's the only two years I've ever been to it, two years in a row. And then in 1998, I went with the next girlfriend I have. Look at me. Uh, my girlfriend, Sue. Uh, we went in 1998, and that was my idea because I had told her, man, this was crazy the, the year before in 97. We got to go check this out in 98. And uh, then it wasn't really – it was fun. You know, it was interesting to go <coughs> – you know, and it gotten really popular because of the movie. But it might have been a little of a letdown being that I built it up so much, and we get there, and it's like not crazy at all. It was fun. It was interesting. Good to say you were there, but 
it didn't have any of the craziness because a lot of people couldn't go because they had to go to work. So those are my two experiences, 97 and 98. And then that was February 2nd, of course. And then it would be what? One, two, three months later is when I ended up moving to Las Vegas. So there you go. Hazel had determined to get on that bus. I was determined. Hazel, Brits don't like line cutters. We love our orderly cues. Well, I would have loved to have seen what a bunch of Brits would have done at Groundhog Day in 1997 uh, out in the woods with no police, no volunteers, nobody you know, telling anybody what to do. I mean, it was just like – it was like anarchy. It really was, but, it, but crazy. All right. Uh, I'll come back to another personal story later. Where I want to go now is I'm going to first go to this story. Uh <laughs> <clears throat> that just got on my agenda for tonight's live show. Um, and that has to do with the murder of the actor Mark Ruffalo's brother, Scott, who was murdered uh, in December of 2008. He was murdered, I think, uh, December 2nd of 2008. So it's been... Uh, over 15 years now. And this reason this got onto my agenda is because Mark is uh, has been nominated for Academy Award for the movie Poor Things, which I've not seen. I guess Emma Stone is also in it. Um, but I've been watching a lot of interviews with some of the actors. I watched like this roundtable of actors, Mark Ruffalo, uh, Jeffrey Wright, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Who else was there? Uh, Oh, um, uh, the Giamatti, Paul Giamatti was in this, but there was like six guys all talking about acting, their experiences coming up through the industry. And it was, so I've been watching a lot of that. So it's also something that's been playing while I've been doing unfound work over the past week. Well, in one of the interviews, uh, Mark brings up dealing with his brother's murder. And I was like, oh yeah, his brother was murdered. I knew that and I had forgotten about it. And then it reminded me again. And you should know this is, you know, it's fairly significant because his brother Scott, although he was not um, an actor, actually for a long time, Mark Ruffalo's brother, Scott, was better known than Mark Ruffalo. Uh, Scott Ruffalo was a uh, beautician or hairdresser, whatever you want to call it, to the stars in Beverly Hills, if you didn't know that, for years and years. And Mark, in, in some of these interviews, has talked about, you know, from for most of that time, uh, and you have to remember that, uh, of course, Mark Ruffalo did a lot of independent stuff. And, of course, anybody, you know, I don't know when he first got on your radar as an actor of, uh, you know, of fame or or whatever else, being in big movies, getting big parts. But for me, the movie that kind of jumps out at me was Zodiac. Of course, he plays Detective Toski or Toshi in the movie Zodiac, right? And I know all you true crime people, I know you've seen that movie, David Fincher. And, of course, Robert Downey Jr. is in that movie, too. It was right around when that movie came out is when Scott got murdered. 
But Mark will tell you for a long time of me being in LA and trying to become an actor and become established and make money and everything, my brother was way better way known than I was because he knew all these famous people, both men and women, uh, because he worked in Beverly Hills doing their hair. I have a funny story that I'll tell you later about that. So he says this, and I was like, yes, I I decided, you know, I got to put this on my agenda for the live show. You know, what exactly did happen there? And you should know Scott Ruffalo's murder, and he was murdered in his Beverly Hills condo, in Beverly Hills, which, as you would imagine, not too many murders happen in Beverly Hills. He was shot execution style. And his body was found out right outside the front door of his condo in Beverly Hills. Execution style, meaning the gun was like right up against his head. I don't think it was in the back. I think I read somewhere where somebody had shot him in the left side of his head. Didn't instantly kill him. He was, they kept him on life support for like a few days before they figured out, you know, he's not going to make it. So I'm going to read you some things and, you know, I want maybe an idea of um, your insight into this. I'm just going to read an article that was written at the time and then I'm going to read something from a few years later. Because there is no news. It's still unsolved. This this comes uh, December 9th, 2008. One week after a seemingly unprovoked shooting, the brother of actor Mark Ruffalo has died and two people have been arrested In connection with the case, Scott Ruffalo, 39 years old, died late Monday night at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in L.A., according to Beverly Hills Police Sergeant Renato Moreno. Two people wanted for questioning about the shooting surrendered to to police earlier Monday, according to the Associated Press. Shaha Mashad Adam, that's actually a woman, 26 years old, was arrested on an attempted murder warrant in connection with the shooting of Ruffalo. Brian Schofield... Her boyfriend was being held on a misdemeanor traffic warrant. His role, Eddie, in the case wasn't immediately clear. Jail records didn't indicate whether the pair of hired attorneys, but showed that a court date for Adam had been tentatively scheduled for Wednesday. Police last week identified Schofield and Adham as persons of interest in the shooting investigation. Scott Ruffalo was shot in the head December 1st at his condo. Mark Ruffalo, star of films 30 Going on 30, Zodiac, and you can count on me, had been at his brother's side bedside since the shooting. In the wake of Scott Ruffalo's shooting, a portrait of the man emerged. A well-known and successful hairdresser, Scott Ruffalo worked as, at salons in Santa Monica and Beverly Hills, including most recently the Giuseppe Franco Salon in Beverly Hills, so you can understand. He held a license in cosmetology since 1991 and in 2001 set up his own corporation, Ruff Incorporated, R-U-F-F, that took in his lucrative income as a hairstylist. He was making big bucks, big bucks. And in fact, I think uh, he's even referred to in some articles like the mayor of Beverly Hills. He was so well known. Of course, he did not have any political position, but he was so well known and everybody loved him and everything. He was known as like the, be- the, the quote, nickname Mayor of Beverly Hills. He is well-liked by everybody and knows everyone in Beverly Hills, his accountant James Leaguer said. He was a guy who really wanted to do things right. As far as I was concerned, he's one of the easiest clients I have. He's 100% above board and would go overboard to make sure everything is done right. <clears throat> um, however, Scott Ruffalo did have one encounter with the law in 2002. 
He was convicted of a felony charge for possession of a controlled substance for sale. A second charge, possession of a narcotic controlled substance, was dismissed. As Beverly Hills police continued their investigation into what happened, Scott Ruffalo's shooting came as shock to those who knew him. It's really strange. This is obviously not just a break-in. Robbers don't just routinely go to Beverly Hills in the middle of the night. Um, and they talked to a neighbor. Uh, she, of course, did not know what was happening. Now, I did re, uh, read somewhere. Could this have been some weird game of Russian roulette or something? <coughs> now, here's uh, an article. Now, like, like I read, there were two people who were charged, Brian Schofield and his girlfriend, uh, Shaha, S-H-A-H-A. Uh, they eventually, those charges were dropped. And so here is a now an article from 2012. Scott Ruffalo, a 39-year-old white man, died Monday, December 8th, 2008, a week after he was shot once in the head in his apartment in the 400 block of North Palm Avenue in Beverly Hills. Ruffalo, a hairdresser, was the brother of actor Mark Ruffalo. Beverly Hills police questioned Shaha Mashal Adham and her boyfriend Brian Schofield about the incident after the couple turned themselves in the week after the shooting. She was booked on suspicion of attempted murder initially held without bail. She was released late the next day after attorney Ronald Richards said he was able to convince police that Adam was present but not responsible for the shooting. There's still an ongoing active and criminal investigation, so we do not have a statement at this time said Beverly Hills Police Lieutenant Tony Lee shortly after Adham's release. This would have been in 2008. Richard said his client, another man in the apartment, found the hairdresser on the couch bleeding, or so maybe inside, bleeding from the left side of his head, the gun in his left hand, and left the apartment. So could this have been a suicide? But it's clear there must have been something going on here that leads them to believe it was not a suicide. Beverly Hills paramedics arrived and took a critically injured Ruffalo to the hospital. Police arrived 20 minutes after the shooting to find no one at the crime scene. According to Adam's account, she was at Ruffalo's apartment to pick up the keys to a Range Rover when Ruffalo mentioned something about Russian roulette. And she says she then heard a gunshot. And there was an update later after this article. Robbery homicide Sergeant Michael Publucker said his department is continuing to investigate Ruffalo's death as a homicide. Publicker declined to provide additional, additional information about the case, citing the open investigation. So what do you think went on here? Um, sir, I, the, the way it's, once again, I'm a little confused. It, it does seem sources uh, conflict on this because <clears throat> as you heard what I just read, it says that he was found inside his condo, but I'm pretty sure I read one other story that said that he was found like in the doorway or something of his condo. It was certainly a shot that was done up close. Um, and of course the way this is written, well, this just sounds like a straight out suicide. He's sitting at home. And as this, uh, Shaha woman said, well, you know, he said something about Russian roulette and just pulled the trigger and the gun went off. And obviously the police didn't believe her cause they did originally charge her. 
but then they let her go the next day. But if this was so clear cut as being uh, an episode of a suicide, somebody killing himself, would this not have been closed by now? Especially given how high profile it is. Well-known guy dies of a gunshot wound at his condo. (coughs) His brother, at least then at that point, famous actor, of course, we know what Mark has done since then, all the Marvel movies. And now he's up for an Academy Award. You would think that they would have come to a firm conclusion. I'm just, (coughs) once again, I don't know why I keep coughing. It just comes and goes. But... You would think that this would have gotten tidied up back in 2008 or 2009 if it were a suicide. I guess they don't think it was. I guess what I'm saying here is that there must be other things in his condo that led police to believe that this was not a suicide and that It might have been staged or something. Um, Now, of course, the way this most recent article that I read, I mean, she makes it sound like, I mean, to read just to read this again, according to Adam's account, she was at Ruffalo's apartment to pick up the keys to a Range Rover. When Ruffalo mentioned something about Russian roulette, she then heard a gunshot. So, was this like, did he have like a speaker or something? Like she goes up, buzzes the, you know, and he says something to her about Russian roulette. And then she hears the gun go off and then somehow she gets up there and finds him dead. Or, I mean, I would have to go and look, you know, it's Beverly Hills. So it stands to reason that probably for these apartments or condos, you just can't walk up. I mean, even where I live, you just can't walk up to my door (laughs) where I live. So I'm going to be inclined to believe that what she's really explaining here, if we are to believe her, that she gets out of her vehicle, goes up, maybe buzzes his place. He comes on the speaker, and then this was when this Russian roulette thing comes out, and then she hears a gunshot. And then, of course, he's not on the speaker anymore because certainly even in gunshots are loud. Or loud, 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 loud. You'd certainly hear one. I don't care how big the complex was. And maybe that's what, you know, somehow she got in and then finds him. In contrast to, did he buzz her in or she got in somehow and she goes up there and does he meet her at the door and they go inside and he just goes right to the couch and shoots himself? I don't know. Um, I don't know. So, obviously there's something here. I mean, we know, hey, (laughs) we know what we do in Unfound, missing persons cases. We know how police are, play hot potato with them, want these, once these, they want these disappearances to go away. But with a suicide of somebody who's well-known and then the brother of somebody who's well-known, and of course there are other people who seemingly saw it or saw the body and everything, this is usually something the police want to really solve. They don't just push it under the rug. Uh, and of course they also have to predict that Mark is going to continue to talk about his brother for as many years as Mark is alive. 
And of course he's doing that here in 2024. This is something you think that they would have solved and they would have just said, yeah, it's a suicide. If they thought it was a suicide, I guess it mustn't be a suicide. No, I guess it mustn't. Um, let's, uh, I'm not familiar with this case. It's a mystery. Kathy's saying, Marty, I've never heard of it either. Not familiar with Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo, uh, Kathy, if you're not into the Marvel movies, as I stated, uh, he was in the movie Zodiac about the Zodiac killer with Robert Downey Jr. Uh, what else have I seen him in? Some of, maybe some of you can also list some other movies. Then I read a couple. Uh, nephew Charles says, yeah, weird scenario. Hazel Shaw died sometime of a drug overdose. So she died of a drug overdose. I think I did read that. And I haven't had a chance to look up Brian Schofield to see what kind of character he is. Hazel Shaw is Adam's lawyer claimed back in 2008. He died while playing Russian roulette while high on Coke and him taking out guns was not uncommon. Well, that's really convenient for her lawyer to say that. (laughs) But uh, Charlie is agreeing with Hazel. Sounds like Scott was a drug user. Uh, Very well could be. He had that one charge. Um, Very well uh, could be, Kathy. Um, And uh, Hazel's talking about Shaw's lawyer. Like I said, I don't know if I'm supposed to believe that or not. Now, where this really gets, uh, you know, so I just wanted to look into it. I, I really don't know if I knew any of these particulars. I certainly didn't know that anybody had been charged at one time. Didn't know that I, – I think I knew that it was a shooting. That would make sense. I didn't know it was like this, though. So I knew that he had been murdered. I think I knew that it was still unsolved. But I didn't know a lot of these details. So I'm glad that I, I took a look into this. And obviously, many of you had not known this. Most of you, many of you certainly know who Mark Ruffalo is, and you know, but you didn't know that his brother had died due to a gunshot wound in 2008. And that this investigation still was still not closed. So there you go. I'm, I'm glad if I could uh, uh, inform you on something, tell you about somebody famous that you didn't know Tonight, uh, Hazel says, I'm sure he was a party boy, but who knows what could have happened. Don't fool around with guns. Yes. Now, here's uh, to finish this story out. Here's one little uh, crazy factoid about this. Uh, And like I said, I'm like, uh, what would it be? Two degrees of separation uh, on this story. Uh, A woman who I'm still very good friends with. Um, she actually used to get her hair done by Scott Ruffalo. How about that? 20 years ago. And, uh, she of course knew that, uh, that, uh, Scott had died due to a gunshot wound. I don't know if she was getting her hair done by him at, at the time of his death in 2008, but I do know at one time uh, that uh, he had, was doing her hair, I'm guessing quite often because she always had fantastic hair. She still has fantastic hair. So um, that's the other weird thing about it. So when I read this, I started – I was like, oh, yeah, she used to get her hair done by that guy. And it all kind of came rushing back to me uh, today. 
So I thought I would serve that up to all of you tonight. Um, like I said, really given everything, um, there's not a ton of information out there. I guess somebody, uh, Hazel discovered that the woman who was uh, charged eventually overdosed herself. It'd be interesting to find out what Brian Schofield has done with his life. Like I said, the way you read it here, it seems pretty straightforward. It very well may be involving drugs. Well, then why is it that the police haven't just ruled it a, su- ruled it a suicide? I wonder. So there you go. All right. Moving on to uh, other topics. Um, guess what I have? I have another Steve Panky letter. It is still sealed. I don't know if you can see that on the camera. It is still sealed. So I'm going to open it live right now. And let's see what Steve Panky has to say. We'll see what the... um, It's just one piece of paper. So let me see here. Um, Party boy. (laughs) Hazel says, I wouldn't have minded getting my hair done. Uh, by him. Okay, Hazel. He must have been good. Charlotte, Ed, did you ever hear about the remains that they found in 1968 in Preble County, Ohio? They thought might be Mary Jane Van Gilder, and the remains turned out to be a man. Yeah, I knew about that, Charlotte. In fact, I might have talked about that um, when that happened. I'm pretty, pretty, pretty sure I did. Because, Charlotte, during that press conference, uh, Detective Turner actually mentioned me and Unfound. So, yes, uh, I uh, I did know about that, Charlotte. Thank you. Uh, Hazel says, ha-ha, another panic letter. So here we go. All right. Uh, okay, it's just one letter. Uh, did he date this? No, he usually kind of like puts a date on which he wrote it, but no dates on this one. As you can see, it's just one piece of paper. So it says, Ed, this is a statement I sent to Judge Kearns and media. Consider a program on the 2009 Sarah Johnson case. I don't know what that is. I, like I said, I'm just re- I just opened it now. So I'll have to look that up. Maybe one of you will look uh sarah johnson up uh charlotte says i learned about it the other day okay charlotte yeah uh when did that happen was that um that was certainly before i went to colorado that must have been back in november or something charlotte that that all transpired there was like a live news conference and yeah myself and unfound got mentioned i should say that some other podcasts and people got mentioned as well all right uh So once again, this is a statement, Ed, this is a statement I sent to Judge Kearns and media. Consider a program on the 2009 Sarah Johnson case. Uh, Number one, 2003, Haley, Idaho. I was a licensed apprentice mortician working for Blaine County Corner, Russ Michael, uh, Wood River Chapel. Uh, Number two. the, The Twin Fall Times News. And Idaho Mountain Express newspapers truthfully reported me being twice at the Bellevue at the Bellevue Sarah Johnson home double murder of her parents crime scene while in process. This is all news to me, so I'm, I'm sure oh, you're going to get scramble to Google to see what this all means. I'm going to read number two again. The Twin Falls Times News and Idaho Mountain Express newspapers truthfully reported me being twice 
At the Bellevue Sarah, Sarah Johnson home, double murder of her parents' crime scene while in process. Three, I was alone in the master bedroom with opportunity to alter the crime scene's bodies present. Why he's writing this stuff. On October 31st, 2022, I was convicted of second-degree murder and kidnapping and murder in 1984. I know that. Number four, Russ Michael lied in his testimony in my first trial. Court records including... Man, I've got to get the lights. Including my Idaho affidavit state, I was twice at the Sarah Johnson crime scene. In the interest of justice, Sarah Johnson has a right to a new trial. Uh, Further your statements... Further your statement saith not, whatever that means, and it is Stalin Steve. So this is all news to me. I'm going to read it all again because it's a bit confusing. Um, hey, Idaho, On I was a licensed apprentice mortician working for the coroner's office. Two newspapers truthfully reported me being twice at the Bellevue Sarah Johnson crime scene. Uh, while in process, I was alone in the master bedroom with opportunity to alter the crime scene with bodies present. I'm guessing he didn't. Let's hope not. On October 31st, we know what happened there, Steve. Number four, Russ Michael lied in his testimony at my first trial. Court records, including my Idaho affidavit state, I was twice at the Sarah Johnson crime scene. In the interest of justice, Sarah Johnson has a right to a new trial. Once again, I have no idea who Sarah Johnson is. Further yours, uh, for your statement, saith not. That must be some biblical verse. So there you go. I will have to look this up on my own time sometime. But if you all want to look up Sarah Johnson and see what Steve is talking about, feel free to do that. <coughs> Harry says, it's age 16, while still a minor child of the laws of Idaho, Sarah was convicted of shooting her parents to death in a criminal case in Blaine County. Uh, the state district court sentenced Sarah to two fixed life sentences without the possibility of parole, as well as a statutory firearm enhancement of 15 years. I'm, uh, Kathy says, I'm familiar with the Sarah Johnson case in Idaho. Her parents didn't like her Latina boyfriend, and she shot them. And so I guess what Steve is saying is he was working for the coroner at the time, and so they had to go out there. But he's now saying uh, that um, his supervisor, who was Russ Michael, M-I-K-E-L, he's claiming, uh, Steve is, that on the stand that Russ lied. Um, of course, the first trial ended in a hung jury. The second one did not. I have no idea if Russ Michael testified during the second trial or not. So... um there you go. So some of you know about Sarah Johnson. That's interesting to me. So, um, and I'm guessing, I don't know if, uh, how much, uh, information Steve has access to now that he's behind bars. I don't know if this is a situation like the Shawshank Redemption where there's like a library and everything. Um, I'm not sure if he wrote this off the top of his head or just remembers it or whatever. <clears throat> but that is what he had to say in this letter. And as he ends it, he says that he thinks that Sarah Johnson deserves a new trial. Uh, some of you who know about this, um, I guess the feeling that I'm getting is that you think otherwise. Uh, Kathy says they have featured the case in ID several times. All right, Kathy, that's, I didn't know that. So that's what Steve had 
to say. Um, anybody who wants to send me any more, more information on this, uh, so then when I write uh, Steve back, I can at least sound somewhat smart on it. Uh, any links, you can email me at unfoundpodcast at gmail.com or some of you who are friends with me in on Facebook. Uh, you want to send me uh, some links? Don't send me stuff to video uh, because I'd rather just read it uh, and take like the, you know, that's kind of the stuff out of it and just get right. So if any news articles and things like that, I would prefer that. So if anybody wants to uh, do that, you can. I would appreciate it. I don't get why he's interested in Sarah Johnson's case. Well, he's, you know, uh, he was involved, I guess, after she killed her parents. And he seems to be intimating that uh, he might have seen something or two that leads him in a different direction. I have no idea. Uh, Sazel Panky clutching at straws. Very well could be, Hazel. Very well could be. All right, where do I want to go next? Um, I want to go to... There's some things I'm going to run out of time tonight. So I want to go just very quickly. Um, Alex Murdaugh tried to get a new trial today. Uh, that was unsuccessful. Um, his attorneys tried to argue that the court clerk in talking to the jury could have uh, led them in a direction to convict uh, Alex. The claim was that uh, the juror identified as juror Z testified she was influenced by remarks Hill made prior to the jury, jury rendering its verdict against Murdoch, telling the judge here, the clerk say, to watch his actions and to watch him closely. Hill's remarks, juror, v, juror Z said, made it seem like he was already guilty. Asked if Hill's comments affected her finding of guilt, the juror said, yes, ma'am. There were two other jurors that admitted to hearing something similar to that, but those two jurors, jurors said that uh, it, you know, it didn't affect them at all. Well, today, uh, this was all done in court this morning, and the judge decided, nope, this is not enough uh, for a retrial. Now, if some of you don't know, this court clerk – uh, sounds to me like she has tried to use her very, very, very small part in this trial to gain some attention for herself. I guess there was a book that she put out or was going to put out, and she was doing this with some other guy, and now they've had a following out over plagiarism. And all. Rebecca Hill sounds like, uh, even though she's, you know, everybody's, all these people are just human. Um, she kind of sounds like a drama queen to me and might be that the clerk being clerk, uh, court clerk is maybe not the best job given her personality, given what is coming up. I don't know what to make of all of this, <clears throat> but even I, I mean, once again, I've talked to you about this before. Some of you have even asked me, well, now that you're talking to Steve Pankey, are you going to write a book about this? The answer is probably, 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 probably no. The only way I would write a book about any of this or make something like, you know, get it into some sort of form to publish or anything is if actually all of this led to actually maybe it being shown that Steve didn't kill Janelle. That's probably the only way it would happen. 
okay? But here I am, you know, several letters back and forth and everything. And unless something really, really, really unusual happens, I have no designs about any of that except just communicating with him. Why? Because I want to, you know, I'm I'm just going to be honest with you. I want to see if he slips up. I'm going to keep him talking maybe for the rest of my life, or maybe he's probably going to die first. I'm going to keep him talking as much as he can, and I'm going to try to see if he makes any mistakes. And is he going to, you know, slip up on something regarding Janelle's murder that actually then can get us all really right? I know a lot of you already think he did it, but something that really, really, really ties all the knots and leaves no doubt for anybody. Of course, it might go in the opposite. I don't know how it could go in the opposite direction, uh, that he does something and it's enough information to think he really, really, really didn't do that. I don't know how that would happen. So the only thing I'm happy with all doing with all these letters is hoping that he slips up and it's, and just comes out for some reason and says something that really catches all of our attention. Like, oh, wow, he didn't, who knew that? He didn't say that before. You know, what would happen if in one of these letters, in a time of, uh, you know, in a time of um, clarity or feeling down or something, what if he would happen to write in one of these letters just in passing? You know what? I was down there where they were singing that day, where Janelle was singing that day. So this is why I'm doing this. So I have experience like Rebecca Hill here. <laughs> I played my very, very small role in all this. I'm not thinking about writing a book, but she's the court clerk. And, you know, she's trying to do this and she's trying to do that, you know, and, it tells me something about her, even though I've never met her. <clears throat> so, um, what is everybody uh, saying here? Uh, Hazel, talk about someone lying on the stand in one case should have repercussions in his. Maybe. Maybe that's what he's thinking, Hazel. Shree, I think that was an episode of 2020. Sarah Johnson is guilty. She shot her dad in the shower. Wow. What a girl. So there will be no new murder trial for Alex Murdaugh. Um, I'm, I'm guessing maybe uh, – I'm guessing we, we haven't heard the end of this. There may be other things, reasons he tries to get a retrial. But as far as a retrial, because of what this court clerk said, not happening. Not happening. That happened today. All right, I want to now go, being uh, this was a big thing in American history, and I realize some of you uh, are not from the United States. Hazel, I know you're in New Zealand. Uh, Charlene, I know you're over there in Ireland. Um, But uh, being that we just uh, passed the 38th anniversary of the, of course, of the blowing up, I mean, really, that's what it was, the blowing up of Challenger, the shuttle Challenger, I just want to give you... um, my recollection of that day, and I know many of you are like around my age, so maybe for you Americans, maybe you kind of remember where you were as well. Um, that happened on January 28th, 1986. It is a date that I will always remember. Just like, I, of course, we're all going to remember September 11th. This is another day that sticks out to me. Uh, I was in ninth grade, 
I was in, uh, I went to Leechburg High School, the building that's still there. Leechburg High still exists. They still use the same school, although they, they, they changed the windows and all sorts of things. I was in afternoon homeroom. And, and you know, I don't know how your high school was set up, but we had eight periods in a day. They were all 42 minutes long. And you had like two, I think you had three minutes to get from one class to the next. Um, it was weird when I first started there, fifth period was the lunch period. So that was the long period. But then later they changed it to sixth period. So sixth period was 66 minutes long. And that's when everybody ate in those like half hour slots in there. And, but then after that, you would go back to your home room for afternoon attendance to make sure nobody skipped out while during while school was happening. And then you had your last two periods of the day. I think school started at 8.20 in the morning, and it ended at like 10 after 3, something like that. I So afternoon homeroom had to be at 1 o'clock or something. So this didn't happen in like real time. It seems to me that people in Leechburg didn't find out. Maybe some people were watching it on TV or something. But um, – Afternoon homeroom usually didn't happen until like one in the afternoon or something. So the challenger uh, had to have blown up well before that. But here's what I remember. I was in homeroom. I remember sitting there. We used to sit in alphabetical order. And there was a guy. His name was Charlie Cleaver, C-L-E-V-E-R, which really weird. He pronounced his last name Cleaver. But there were a bunch of other families in the Leechburg area with that last name. They pronounced their last name Clever. I don't know. But he, I can remember him sitting because we went alphabetically. It was like A, B, C, so Cleaver, and then D, Denzel, and I can't remember who sat behind me. I just remember sitting there. The teacher was Mr. Crosley, K-R-O-Z-L-E-Y. And I can remember another teacher coming into the classroom while we were sitting there at home, you know, afternoon homeroom for this couple minutes. And his uh, name was Dominic Guido, Mr. Guido, who ended up, who was also a football coach, basketball coach. And he and Mr. Crosley were good friends. And uh, I don't know if Mr. Crosley's still alive anymore, but uh, Dom Guido died some years ago, maybe five years ago or something, maybe three years ago. Anyway, um, Dom Guido, Dominic Guido is his name, Dom Guido, came in. I still remember this. He came in like really, you could tell something was going on. And he like looked at Mr. Crosley and he like gave him like, you got to come with me there. No words were exchanged between the two of them. You got to come with me. You know, it was like he gave him the finger like, you know, come here. So Crosley goes rushing out of the room. Dom Guido goes rushing out of the room. And so all those kids are just sitting there. No teachers there. And we were thinking, of course, everybody's thinking, well, something, is there a fight going on? Or is there something going on in the school? And then like not long, it was maybe 30 seconds or something. Mr. Crosley comes back in, and I'd call him by his first name, being that I'm a now adult, too. I don't remember what his first – Tony Crosley, maybe? Maybe. He comes back in, and that's when he tells us all that the Challenger exploded. Of course, details were very scant at the time. Nobody really knew what happened right at that moment. Of course, they would find out what happened. But right at that point, all we knew was that the Challenger exploded. And, of course, you have to remember, you have to think of it in the – in that time, the 1980s, 
I'm sure people might have been thinking, did the did the Soviet Union, did the Russians put a bomb? Did they sneak a bomb onto the shuttle and blow it up because the Russians were very jealous of our space program? Did somebody else do this? Of course, terrorism was going on in the United States in the 1980s as well. Did some terrorist manage to sneak a bomb onto the space shuttle or whatever else? Luckily, very quickly, they were able to determine it was because the launch should have never happened and the O-rings and all that stuff that... Though the temperature was too low, it should have never gone into the sky in the first place. And the fuel started leaking, and kaboom, there was a spark, and kaboom. But that is what I remember um, about the Challenger. And I can remember for days after that, I mean, that was like, you know, of course, before the internet and everything else. But some of the classes that we would have, like a geography class that I might have had or a science class or something, we didn't do anything. They just played the TV because it was like 24-7 coverage of what happened to the Challenger. And so we'd go into the class. And, of course, that was the year of, like, bunny ears, you know, antennas and everything. And we'd just, for the total 40-some minutes, we'd just watch news coverage of, you know, them talking about Challenger and what could have happened. That is what I remember. I also remember where I was when uh, Columbia blew up in 2004. I was working at Star Trek. I showed up. And that's when it happened. Of course, it disintegrated right back here. I mean, it disintegrated as it was coming this way, headed toward, of course, it was going to land over, you know, near Daytona. It was going to land at Cape Canaveral in the big big runway over there. It disintegrated a couple thousand miles right behind me. Of course, a lot of those debris was found in Texas. Probably would have came right, would have come right over here. So that's where that happened. So that is my recollection of, of Challenger. Well, 38 years ago, and then um, actually very quickly will be coming up because for uh, Columbia, that also happened early. I think it happened in February of 2004. So we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of that. <clears throat> and like I said, I was working at Star Trek, the experience at that time. And I can remember all of us um, watching the TV in the break room while that was being reported on. Of course, one died as they were going to space, and the other one dis- disintegrated as it was coming back from space. Both totally avoidable. <coughs> Big mistakes by engineers in both of those. <coughs> All right. Um, speaking of, unfortunately, another anniversary uh, that we just passed, that is the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie. Uh, as I've stated many times, this is a disappearance as far as regular average people go in the United States. This has to be one of the most well-known of the 21st century, um, right with Mara Murray, with Brian Schaefer, and maybe you could put another <coughs> a couple other disappearances in there if you would like. Um, I've made my opinion on this uh, disappearance loud and clear over the years. I'm, a, I'm in a minority I continue to believe that she disappeared the night before and not the next morning. I believe she disappeared on that Monday night in contrast uh, to she was leaving and got abducted on that Tuesday morning. Um, And I have to tell you, I believe this for years and years and years and years. And I will also tell you that my experience of disappearances, my experiences with disappearances over the last seven and a half years and a half years only reinforces that belief. Okay, 
of course, circumstantial, but I think every theory in her disappearance is circumstantial. <coughs> there are no facts, despite what her fa- uh, family says and other people say. There are no facts to support any particular theory any more than any other. I know what they say about the wet towel and all of that. That's not a fact. That's an opinion. The, it may be a fact that the towel was wet. I'm not sure that means anything. It doesn't mean anything to me. And of course, more recently, while well, our car, there was like the, the there there was like this marks on the car. It looks like there might have been a fight or something on a car. I mean, it's gotten to me, it's gotten really out there. But I guess what should be amazing to us um after all of these years is that they got the car back. It was parked right down the street. <coughs> I've actually been right to that spot uh, over in Orlando where a car was found. Uh, In fact, I'll be over in Orlando uh, this coming weekend. Maybe I'll drive over there again. Um, I've been to actually where she lived. I've been inside that complex too some years ago. Of course, they got the video. So we got the car. We got video. I know it's bad luck. (laughs) So there are only a few possibilities of what could have happened. And she is still missing. Um, this is one of those, I think, disappearances where certainly foul play occurred. We can all differ on who did it. But this is also one of those where I think that the reason it hasn't been solved is just bad luck. <coughs> you know, if just one thing goes right here or there, this is probably solved. If the video is continuous video instead of that apartment complex being cheap and the thing only taking pictures <coughs> every so many seconds, man, I got the coughs. <coughs> wow. Allergies. Um, if that it was like real video instead of that crap video uh, that the apartment complex had, had somebody been... Uh, you know, some apartment resident been there when the car pulled in and whoever it was got out of the car. That would have made a big difference. So many things uh, that just went this way or that way. I think her disappearance would have been uh, solved by now. And maybe you could say that for a lot of unfounds cases as well. Um, will they ever solve it? I think they will. I think this, I think her disappearance is certainly solvable. I think we have to remember that at least an unfounds collection of cases, Jennifer Kessie's disappearance. I know it's been horrible for her family all these years and friends, anybody who really you know, knew her and cared about her. I know it's been horrible. I can't imagine it. We also have to remember statistically though, that. Uh, her disappearance is 18 years old. The average age of a disappearance we cover on Unfound is 23 years. So despite her being missing for 18 years, it's a long time. It hasn't even reached the average age of a disappearance that we feature on this podcast. So I think we have to keep that in mind. I know it's been horrible. But there's still a lot of time. There's still a ton of time to solve this, not don't necessarily know how, 
And as we know, the Kessie family went to court and got all that paperwork. It seemingly has not helped them at all. Uh, I would love to be involved, but certainly uh, I'm truthful with all my guests, and I don't think the Kessies would like me saying that I think her their daughter disappeared the night before because I think she had another guy in her life beside her fiancé, and she was going to see that guy. They're not going to like that. So, um, but that continues to be my opinion on it. Uh, just... 18 years, uh, but I continue to believe that sometimes, I don't know when the line is. I'm not going to sit here, and even though I've been doing this for seven and a half years, uh, I'm not going to sit here and tell you where where the cutoff is. Probably depends on a lot of different things. But at some point, when you have a certain idea about what happened in a disappearance, and you keep working it and working it and working it, and you get all the paperwork from the police, and really that doesn't move anything forward at all. I think at some point you have to go back to basics and think, maybe we thought what happened in this disappearance isn't what happened. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that Jennifer killed herself. I don't believe that. I don't believe she went off and started a new life or anything. This was certainly foul play. Um... You know, and I think if I were to put it in a category, I think Jennifer's disappearance would be it's a murder, but you know, it's a murder, but we just don't know who the suspect is. Uh, I think after a certain point of time, you have to go back to basics, really start questioning whether you really, really, really think you understand this disappearance, whether it's Jennifer's or anybody else's. When a certain theory and you have all the paperwork and it doesn't go anywhere and you think it was foul play on. It's, it's time to change. It's time to open your mind. This would be different. Uh, I would feel differently if it was a different type of disappearance. Mara Murray's, for example. And I realize a lot of people, different people, um, have a lot of different opinions on what happened to Mara Murray. But at least in Mara Murray's, there is the possibility held by a lot of people, including myself, that she just ran off. She knew she was drinking and driving. She knew the cops were eventually going to show up one way or the other, where somebody called him or not. She didn't want to get in trouble. She took whatever she could, and she ran off. She ran down the road and didn't want to leave any footprints, and at some point, she ran off and probably died in the snow, maybe because she had a head injury or even some other, maybe she was bleeding or something. That is not a possibility with Jennifer Cassie. Certainly maybe foul plan in Mara, Mara's disappearance, but it really does look like she just took off on her own. But there's a lot of different possibilities. And so is it worth changing your mind? Probably not because pretty much everybody's kind of split. Whereas with Jennifer Cassie, everybody believes she was murdered. It's just, it varies on who and what, who they think the murderer is. And everybody's been so set on it was the it was uh, the landscapers who just happened to maybe not be American citizens and and all and our, that's gone nowhere. And I and I remind you, a lot of people like that are getting caught with murders all the time. Then why is it that he or they have been able to get away with Jennifer's murder? It's hard to understand.
So maybe we need to start thinking that maybe those landscapers didn't do it and or a contractor, somebody didn't do it. And maybe it was somebody much, much closer to Jennifer. Maybe. And as I continue to say, the uh, the cell phone is something that is almost unwavering from disappearance to disappearance to disappearance. When somebody goes out of contact with their phone, whether they stop answering it or they shut it off, I don't care if it's 2006 or 2012 or 2024, that is when the disappearance starts. Right then. Jennifer shut her phone off the night before and never turned it back on, despite some people believing she got up, she did her hair, she got a shower, she got her uh, makeup done, she ate her breakfast, she picked out her outfit. All these things would have had to have taken, what, an hour, an hour and a half? You can, you ladies out there can uh, say how much time that would take. She did all of that, never turned her phone on. And I know what people, oh, it's 2006. I had a cell phone in 2006. But we know why people turn their phones off sometimes. Because they don't want to be contacted. So that's what I go on for her disappearance. Very still, very sad. Uh, Moving on. I want to talk about uh, what's going on here. Uh, This just shows you the police, man. There is a missing woman. Uh, her name is Nicole Baldwin. Uh, she was last seen in Mount Dora, Florida, which is kind of going into like uh, <clears throat> the center of Florida, going over there toward Orlando. She took off and allegedly took off, and no belongings never returned. Since then, there, there have been countless searches across Lake County to try and find her. Days after Baldwin was reported missing, News 6 was police searching saw police searching her home for evidence. But now there is a woman. There is, uh, what is her name? What is her name? Let's find it now. Hold on. Her last name is Rogers. Terry Rogers is her name. And early on, she got involved in trying to track down Nicole. She's been uh, organizing people, putting up flyers and everything. So what do you think the police are doing with her? She's trying to be helpful and everything else. What do you think they're doing with her? (laughs) Police in Lake County actually served a search warrant on Terry Rogers' house. So this woman who got involved didn't know Nicole Baldwin at all, just wanted to get involved because she thought it was the right thing to do. And we then find out Terry Rogers has a member or a friend or a member, family member who was also missing. And I may get to that before I only got about 18 minutes left. But, but uh, Rogers told News 6 it was in her home in Lake County where investigators showed up to search last Friday morning. As soon as I opened my door, they all just flooded in, said Rogers. I've done, I have not done anything wrong. All I've done was given my time, my emotions, my heart, and soul for looking for Nicole. She said they searched her home and devices. They searched my phone, computers, old laptops, desktops of my deceased husband. When we asked uh, press, the uh, media saying, when we asked Mount Dora Police Department about the search warrant, they sent Sick News 6 this statement. 
On Friday, January 19th, the Mount Dora Police Department executed an investigative search warrant related to the continued search for missing person, Nicole Baldwin. The status of the investigation is ongoing. Roger said, says, they think I withheld information. She says she didn't even know Baldwin. She doesn't know where Baldwin is and didn't even know her or what happened to her. Roger said the search for Nicole is also personal for her. My niece disappeared going on eight months in a very similar situation out of Polk County, and her name was Tanya Whip, W-H-I-P-P. Whip 38 was reported missing on June 29th and was last seen in the Auburndale area, once again, that, over that direction. As far as the Baldwin case, News 6 reached out to the FDLE, who said Mount Dora Police is the lead investigation unit. Mount Dora Police Department said the case remains ongoing. So this woman, private citizen, tries to help out and trying to find out what happened to Cole Baldwin. And what do the police do? They turn around and serve a search warrant on her house. Um, to go back to the Irma McCurchion uh, episode from a week and a half ago, you heard my rant, I guess, in that last uh, part in my summary for that episode. This is the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. Families are going to have to get it through their heads, and the public is going to have to get it through their heads. When And I'm just going to stick to disappearances. I'm not straying outside of my area of expertise. When it comes to this stuff, families, the public, and police are not on a team. Their goals are different. It seems it makes all the sense in the world. It makes all the logical sense in the world that you would think the family and police department should be on the same team trying to figure out what happened to a missing person. It is not so. It is not so. Not because the police are evil, not because they're corrupt or anything else. It's they have their own agenda. They have their own agenda regarding all of this. And yes, like I said, yes, uh, when it comes to disappearances, yes. If somebody comes in and says, you know what? I caused the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie, for example. And this is what happened. I can tell you where her body is. This is why I did it. The police will happily, gladly, swiftly, professionally take that person's statement, handcuff that person, read him or her his rights, Put them in a cell. They'll do all of that. And then they'll go out and try to, you know, if he, he, the, the guy says, yes, yeah, she's out here. You can find her out there. They'll go out there. They'll search the area. They'll find Jennifer Cassie's remains. If she is deceased, I, of course, hope she is alive. But this is just an example. Um, they'll do all that. Otherwise, they're not doing much. Not for Jennifer Cassie's disappearance or most of the other disappearances that we have featured on, on Unfounder, none of them. I realize that people, we hold police in very high regard because most of the time, not all of the time, as we saw like you, for Uvalde and that other school shooting where police are afraid to do something. Most of the time, when bullets start flying and there's shots fired, we have police officers running toward the shots. Everybody's running the other way. And they deserve all of our respect in the world. But that doesn't mean that they should be put on a pedestal. Everything is always, what have you done for me lately? I know I'm sounding like Eddie Murphy's uh, 
uh, raw com- comedic routine from the mid 1980s. What have you done for me lately? Um, this is what the police should be. Yeah, you're good, but what have you done for me lately? Yes, you solved that crime from 10 years ago. Yeah, you stopped that school shooting 10 years ago. What have you done for me lately? (laughs) You know, you don't, just because you did something great at some point doesn't mean you get to be lackadaisical now and sit back and not do anything now. But they are not on the same team. They're looking out for their reputations. And as I told you a few weeks ago, uh, in talking to that uh, woman who is now a re- retired FBI uh, agent, she just admitted she knew somebody, a guy in a local police department. He, he admitted we didn't allow another police department to con- come in and look over this case because we were afraid that they might show us up. They might that we they we thought we were afraid they might find mistakes that we made. She admitted that to me, and he admitted that to her. So how much do you think that goes on? A lot. If I'm finding out about it, and I'm not law enforcement at all, if I'm finding out about it, just minding my own business, then how much do you think that's going on out there? Hundreds, if not thousands of times in all different types of crimes. So much ego out there, so much pride, so much vanity. To the point where when people try to help out, the police get all worried. but as I have it in my notes, this is what happens when police don't know what they're doing. They go search people who are actually helping. We got nothing else to do. Why don't we serve a warrant on one of the the people who's leading the searches? How about that? They will do. This is what happens when they don't know what they're doing. They'll do anything, including invading people's rights. This is, whereas I continue to say, if they actually knew what they were doing, if I could get into teaching these these uh, men and women just the basics, this would not be happening. Now, it's what's obvious to me is certainly this woman uh, who went missing, Nicole Baldwin, was certainly killed by a man in her life. She certainly. Now, what's interesting is not long enough to read up on Nicole Baldwin. She's married, but she lent her car to her ex-boyfriend. No, that doesn't sound like trouble at all. I don't care. Still want to find her. Hope she's alive. That seems like a stupid thing to do, but that's not really how we judge things at Unfound. But it's in the news. It's right here for everybody to see, and the police are serving a warrant on somebody who's doing a search. It's crazy. It's insane. I don't know how... These people cannot be embarrassed for themselves. And what kind of judge signed off on this? It is disgusting. It is absolutely disgusting. And then the, and the, but you know what will happen? The same police department probably a week from now will turn around and say, you know what? We need the public's help regarding this case. Uh, somebody you know, sprayed graffiti on the downtown statue here. Can the public come forward and give us some information right after they just served a warrant on some innocent person's house? Once again, what have you done for me lately? 
What's everybody saying here now that I'm going to calm down uh, for a second? Fairy Magic's here. Fairy, what's going on? Uh, Charlie said, my entire elementary school watched the Challenger disaster live in the gymnasium. Okay, uh, Charlie, of course, you're a little bit younger than me. Um, we're staying out of that, Hazel. Uh, we're staying out of politics. Uh, we're not doing that here. Uh, Kathy, I was on a filing season detail answering taxpayers' questions. You called in very busy. A caller told me what happened right away. So that's Kathy's recollection of Challenger. Um, let's see here. Um, anybody else have any recollections of Challenger? Hazel said, I read a compelling witness statement of a couple who believe they started leaving the complex in car fighting with the abductor. Uh, once again, witness statements. They tell you everything but you, what you really want to know. Um, Hazel, do you think the guy might be the friend of her brother who was, she was used to see or someone else? We know that a guy that had the hots for Jennifer Cassie, she had blown off. He was right down the street when she went missing. That is true. Um, we had that ex at the bar that night before. There you go. That's what I'm talking about, Rockford. Thank you. Um, I think it was him. Don't know if you ever covered it already, but read a mainstream news article this week and reporting her missing that morning is fact. It's fine conjecture, but the media needs to do better. If anybody has video of her leaving in her car that morning, I'm willing to watch it. Other than that, <clears throat> like I said, from the, from the very beginning, the Kessie family is locked into a particular story that no facts back up except for a wet towel. This sounds a little too Columbo-ish for me. Um, and the reason they're doing that, I think at least be, at the beginning, and this is one of those things, families got to watch what they say. They don't know how long their disappearance is going to exist. Very well may be that Jennifer could have come back a week later alive. Very could have happened, I suppose, maybe. But the problem is families get, as we, you know, usually we're talking more about this topic <laughs> regarding addiction or prostitution, felonies and things like that. You have to be honest. And early on, the Kessies got locked into the idea that their daughter left on Tuesday morning. Why? Because they knew what it would look like if they said that she vanished Monday night. They knew that. And so now they're locked in, 20, you know, 18 years later. Families don't do that. Be truthful. Be open-minded. If you really want to find your missing loved one, you have to be honest and open your mind and, and acknowledge there aren't a lot of facts to go in any particular direction, so we need to keep our minds open. It, and that very well may be mean that we have to be open to the idea that maybe our loved one wasn't as good as we thought. I, we have to remember, for good people, for those families out there, good people don't care about this. We just want you to be honest. That's all. Uh, how do we know she turned her phone off? It's, it's well-known fact. Uh, yes, it's it's certainly out there. <clears throat> yeah, I, I know I mentioned this before. I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but everyone really interested in the Cassie Deep Dive should go to the old Blink on Crime website. Right. Uh, yeah, Blink, I remember that. I think that. Uh, yeah, that blank on crime that came up in a conversation recently. Uh, Hazel feels bad for the volunteer of the story that I just, uh, talked about. Um, 
The police always look uh, to the victim's small inner circle of friends and family first. Yeah, Brian, this woman that they served a subpoena on her in a warrant certainly is not that. Charlotte, it's an old website uh, regarding blink on crime. Yeah. Uh, Brian says, you would think the police would appreciate anyone willing to help in any way in a case. Yes, they could be looked at as everyone should in an investigating case. For the avoidance of doubt, Ed, I'm with you at Cassie likely missing the night before and you and against and against the media misleading people by reporting the morning disappearance is fact. There's no fact to support that. You know, and I, 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 and I will admit that, uh, you know, I always try to be objective as possible, but, and, and I know this, I'll just say it as a grown man at 53, who's been single and has had some girlfriends lived in a wild city like Las Vegas for 13 and a half years and all of that. My experience is you tell me that an attractive young woman who's doing well for herself, living by herself, educated, all of that stuff, and her fiancé is living four hours away. My experience is... I'll just leave it at that. That's my experience. You know, I have to remember that I once lived with a woman uh, who I watch, and I have the highest regard for this woman to this day. I liked her a lot. She was just a roommate. I saw her juggle three guys at one time. It's a true story. Kept my mouth shut because I don't want to get involved. She wasn't married. She can do whatever she wants, but juggling three guys at one time. And she has a lot of the same qualities of Jennifer Kessie. And a fine woman who ended up getting married, is still married 20 years later, has like three kids, seems to be doing very well in her husband. Very happy for her. But just saying. That's my experience of 53 years. All right. Uh, so we got this woman. And once again, I want to remind you uh, that woman's name was Nicole Baldwin. And the missing woman, and then the other missing woman, her name is Tanya Whip. And I'm pretty sure uh, that the man in her life killed her. How do I, why do I think that? Because she was with a guy who had already gone to, uh, who had already gone to um, <laughs> jail once for 20 years for attempted first degree murder. So there's that. This Friday, um, we will be doing what we might call an experimental episode. I know what you're saying. Well, we just did the Ehrman McCurchin. Was that not enough experimental? Um, I guess not. This Friday, it will be the disappearance of Nancy Troche Garcia. T-R-O-C-H-E hyphen Garcia. She went missing from Asheboro, North Carolina on September 19th of 2018 and this is the bilingual episode. So what happened was I started talking to Nancy's mother, who is her name is Mary in Mexico. Mary does not speak English. So I was going back and forth with her on Messenger with me using Google Translate, Google Translation. Uh, I had first contacted the Facebook page. She got back to me in Spanish. We went back and forth. She actually put me in contact with somebody who spoke English that had been helping her out. 
But I have to be honest, I didn't have a lot of confidence that this person could do a very good interview. So instead, I re-enlisted an, uh, a, an assistant I used to have. She went on to Bigger and Better Things. Her name is Natasha. She does speak Spanish. She's uh, Bolivian and American, uh, so she speaks Spanish and English. I asked her if I put together an interview outline, if she would then interview Mary in Spanish. And then Natasha and a friend of hers would translate the entire thing into English with Natasha doing her part in English and then her friend doing Mary's part, answering, you know, translating what Mary had to say about her daughter's disappearance. We pulled this off. (laughs) Well, we pulled it off. Like I said, an experiment. But I had made a promise to Mary some time ago. It might even have been going back the whole way back to last summer that she, you know, she can't find anybody in the United States. She's in Mexico. Her daughter went missing in North Carolina. She's just desperate for help to get into uh, the media in the United States, but she can't do interviews because she speaks Spanish and everything else. And I promised her I would do something for her, even though I don't speak Spanish. I gave her my word I would help her somehow. So I realize this Friday's episode is maybe not as uh, fit and finished as you're used to, but I want you to keep in mind that um, I've been wanting to do this for a while. This is a woman, uh, a woman of another country who certainly needs help. Her daughter was <coughs> here in the United States, so we as Americans are responsible for her, and I tried to make it happen in the best way that I know possible. And I really thank uh, Natasha and Consuelo, as her friend's name, for doing this. And so you're going to hear that. Now, you should know, I'm also going to make the actual raw interview of Natasha talking to Mary available. All right. It'll just be, I'll put it up here on YouTube. It won't have it. won't be talking at all. It'll just be the interview in Spanish. If any of you do speak Spanish, you can just listen to the Spanish version. For everybody else, you'll get the translation. So that's this Friday. Nancy Trishay Garcia. She went missing on September 19th, 2018 from Ashburn, North Carolina. Her car is missing too. And people in the area have tried to convince Mary that Nancy was actually, her plans was to move back to Mexico. Obviously, that did not happen because Nancy and her car are still missing. They didn't go back to Mexico. Nancy is a mother and the child is now with uh, the father of the child. And of course, we have to suspect maybe he had something to do with this. That'll be up for you to decide. But that will be, uh, that is this Friday. You can start reading up on that. This is a disappearance given that it happened in the United States. It is on the Charlie Project. It is on NamUs. Um, This bilingual episode will be interesting. Uh, Agreed on the experience at every situation different, but we can't beatify every victim no matter how much care we care about them and want to see justice for them. Yes. All right. Hazel's getting out, which means all of us are getting out. It's past 11 o'clock Eastern time. That's it. That's all she wrote for this episode. A lot of uh, stories tonight. I hope you enjoyed all of them. A couple personal stories, a lot of true crime. Some of you didn't know about Mark Bruffalo's brother. Glad I could pass that along to all to you, to all of you. So that's all I got. And I hope you have a very safe week. And 
and uh, that's that is uh, about it. And you know, it's so weird. I coughed, and now it's been like what twenty minutes. I haven't coughed at all. It's so weird. Thank you all, Sharif. Even though I know you're not feeling well, thank you for moderating tonight. Charlie, say hi, kids, hi to the kids for me. Good night. <laughs>